So before I start, I have three things I need to account to you for. All right, so this is my official accounting session. I'm reporting back to you uh, on three things, two of which I think are doing very really well. One is only moderately progressing well. So it's, I'm not only just telling you all the good stuff, I'm going to be honest. First thing, many of you know, some of you may not, that when we were here in October for the International Conference, God really spoke to me, and I had one of those life-altering adjustments. Right? My life has not been the same since October. Uh, uh, and I am happy to report that I actually like being me better now than ever before. Well, I don't know where I went. You know, uh, you know how bad it is when my wife sends me off saying, I'm hoping you're going to come back different. Like, holy smokes, you know, should I, um, what, am I in, in trouble already? A little. Oh, no, man. No, no, you're recovering. So, you know, we'll be married 40 years this year, so when she says, you better come back different, I'm thinking, I better come back different. So um, my accounting to you is that that continues well. The sense of direction and faith and perspective that I gained by meeting with God and all of you here in October stays with me, and I am excited about that. So that's number one. Number two... Many of you here also know that there was this sort of prophetic nudge, this sense that Keith Marsh and I from the U.S. should be working closer together. So first thing is, uh, I'll be in trouble, Keith sends you his greetings. And I am here to report that we have been meeting together at least twice a month, uh, at least once a month, mostly twice a month since then. And we get together, we've started a blog together. We're going to start trying to find ways to communicate and work together. So uh, Keith's um, uh, father-in-law passed away. Cherry's dad uh, passed away just a few weeks ago. So in the last month or so, and they've moved homes as well. So we haven't had as much time together as we have been. We were meeting twice a month before that. Uh, now, the last month or so, it's only been once. He's brought his whole family down to New Jersey for a Sunday, and we all shared family time together, and we're going to bring some of our family up to visit him in August as well to spend some time together. So that's the second accounting. We are, in fact, walking in obedience to what God has given us and enjoying it. And uh, we, that's all a, a, another part of what happened to us while we were here. Um, so that's the second thing. And the third accountability that I want to bring to you is obviously last, the last Sunday of the conference in October, all of the L&I leaders stood up in front of you, and we made a commitment to you about walking together with you and walking together with John and the family, and we're only moderately successful at that, okay, and we are aware of that. Uh, so some of the other men have gone with John to some of the conferences, the Zimbabwe conference, some of the other pastors went, Albert's done some things, and uh, we realize we still have more to go in that, but I want to account to you that we realize we still have more to go in that, all right? We are not... We're not satisfied with where we are, neither have we forgotten it, but we're still trying to figure out, okay, what does that really mean for us now? So we, we are very deeply committed to those things, and so I just wanted to give an account to you uh, for those, those three things, my own personal life, and that's, of course, that's the most important, <clears throat> and then um, uh, that Keith and I are walking together as, as we committed ourselves to do, and God has been blessing us, and uh, eventually we'll... we'll let you know the name of the blog. We're still trying to figure out 
what that really means and how to do it and oh yeah, and by the way, uh, entries don't automatically appear. It, it requires some writing. <laughs> and like, oh, oh, you mean it's been a week? So we're working at it, but there you go. So thank you. Also, on a personal note, many of you know my wife had neck surgery a while back just to report that uh, it's been an amazing change in her life. Um, she's still in the process of recovering physical strength in some of her extremities because of the loss of muscle. But the pain that she was, had been so debilitating and so pervasive is really completely gone now in that area. So it's just really nice. And thank you all for your prayers. All right, so I get a few minutes with you. I don't even want to preach, but I don't think I can resist the urge. <laughs> what I would like to do with you is just share some thoughts with you. I'd like to share some thoughts around the subject of the way temptation changes. Temptation is a very, very real phenomena. You, if you've been committed to follow Christ for any length of time, from five seconds to 50 years, you realize that temptations are real. That there is, at times, an attractiveness about engaging in a way of thought or a set of behaviors, or an attitude, or an approach that really isn't in your own best interest, right? That that actually happens. But what I'd like to talk to you about is different stages of our lives, different spiritual stages of our lives, how that temptation changes in the different stages, right? because they do change. And so I'm, I like to read a verse that you probably have heard a hundred times. I, I think I may have even referenced it once or twice, but I'd like to use this verse here in the first letter of John, chapter 2, as the kind of the buckets of concepts that I'd like to pour into. All right? So you see it here in the NIV. In fact, I'm just going to read from the screen because my version is different than the one that's there. So if you don't mind, I'm going to turn my back on you and read from the screen. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The NIV's use of language isn't quite giving you all of the nuances that might be possible. But he talks about three categories. Talks about children. Talks about adolescents, young men. Talks about parents, fathers. And I suggest to you that those are indicative of three spiritual stages of childhood, young adulthood, and older parenting, right? 
Um, in our Western cultures, we use the word father. I mean, you could be a father at 20, right? You can be a father younger than that. But most of us are somewhere in our early 20s, maybe late 20s, maybe early 30s, when we become fathers. It's still a young man term in our culture. But in biblical culture and in many of the cultures of the world today, the concept of being a parent, father, is, is a reference not to the spawning offspring as much as it is the fact that you have accomplished, you have, you have journeyed long enough to earn the title. Right? So uh, in many developing countries, calling someone a father is, is, an, is a term of respect and honor for their age. And the, and the Bible recognizes that, uh, that quality as well. It, it, it orients that word not to the fact that you have offspring, but that you are a certain quality of individual. Right? When I uh, go to Uganda, the, their word for me is Muse. That's my name now. I have no other name, Muse, and it means old guy with gray hair. <laughs> so John would still qualify as a Muse. So when I get emails from them, it's just addressed to Muse, M-Z-E-E. That's my name, comma. And so it, it's, a, as you're well aware, you've experienced it hundreds of times, it's a, it's a term of, of respect. It's a recognition that the quality of your life gives you a certain status. It's not about uh, whether you have generated offspring physically. Right? And so the, 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 the words here are not indicative of chronology or chronologic categories. They are types of individual categories. There's the type of individual known as a child. There's a type of individual known as a young adult. And there's a type of individual known as a father, parent. And so it's really addressing types of people, not categorizations of age. Now, that may seem obvious, but it may not to some. So when we talk about these categories, we're not talking about um, physicality. We're talking about some other characteristic. And there are three such characteristics. And and uh, the, the writer here, John, is saying uh, there are three things that are true about these categories. And I want to unpack with you, discuss, play, start the conversation. I would like this conversation to keep going after I'm gone. Because there are three things. And I, I would want to suggest in each of these categories of persons, and every one of us in this room fits one of those buckets you are one of those three kinds of individuals. You are one. And whichever one you are, that category brings certain opportunities that do not come to the other categories. But it also carries certain temptations that may not be the same for the other categories. And what I would like to talk to you about is what are those opportunities that are uniquely available to those in that stage, that category? And what are the temptations that are in that stage as well? Now, let me say that's the first piece of introduction. I have very long introductions. 
The second piece that I want to say to you is really much more important. And that is the way you handle your temptations in life determines who you become. How you deal with temptation determines who you become. That's good news and bad news. What I want to tell you is you, you, every one of us develops a, a trajectory of dealing with those issues in life. We develop a kind of a direction about how we deal with the temptations that come to us. That direction, not the temptation, that direction determines who you become. The temptations don't determine who you become. It's the direction you take in dealing with them. That's what makes you you. And please be, hear me. Who you are now is who you become in the final era. When we finally meet the Lord face to face, we become who we have always been wanting to become. Who I want to become is determined by how I deal with the temptations I face. Does that make sense? When we finally graduate and we cross into eternity, we become the person we have always wanted to be. And that could be bad. That can be good. But that's when you get there, you don't suddenly become a different you. You finally become the best you you've ever dreamed of. But who that is is determined by the trajectory of the way you deal with your temptations. All right? So that's why, to me, that realization, that's why Jesus said it is better to enter into eternity if your right arm offends you, cut it off, because you're better off going into life without a limb than you are coming in with a, with a, with a twisted, twisted way of life. Because what you become in the final harvest is what you've been becoming all along. You just get brought to the natural conclusion of where your life has been headed. But that is still beautiful because if you repent that you're, you know, that's like, well, does that mean you can't be saved if you just say, invite Christ to be Lord of your life when you're dead, when you're dying? Of course you can because the trajectory just changed. But you become who you've always been wanting to become. So that makes it very important to me that I live my life the way I want it to become. Because when I finally cross that line, I get to be the best me that I've always been aiming at. So it's worth dealing with temptations. It's not worth saying, ah, oh, what the heck, you know, um, I'll deal with it later. I don't want that to be the trajectory of my life. Does that make sense? So that's why dealing with temptations is important. So let's look at three things. First, I have props. What is this? What? It's a bottle, right? It's a baby's bottle. 
put sustenance in here. Screw it on. You, if I could figure out how to pull the cap off, you would pull the cap off. But I can't, so you don't. So, oh, there you go. And you get to eat your substance. Who uses this? Babies, right? Infants, children. It would be kind of weird to go to dinner at someone's house and all of the drinks were poured in little plastic bottles with nipples on them and we sat around the table drinking our Shiraz out of them. <laughs> oh, no, no, please, I'd rather the Chardonnay. <laughs> There's a very genuine category of human for whom this is really appropriate. And it would be incredibly inappropriate to shove the very expensive glass, wine glass, to your infant and say, here, here's your milk. Right? You wouldn't, you'd lose the milk, the glass, and possibly the baby. So instead, you give it one of these. Because it's an appropriate place. It's not insulting, unless you're doing that at 22. It's not demeaning. It's not embarrassing. It's not inappropriate. It's completely appropriate for those who are learning how to feed themselves and learning how that life is about sustenance, that you need to eat to stay alive. And that's true of spiritual infants. It doesn't matter whether you... I, I remember uh, in the last church, we had a family of, of older women. There was a mother who was in her 80s and two of her daughters in their 60s. And all three of them gave their lives to Christ. I, I baptized the mother at 86. It was really cool. I was nervous, really, to be honest. But it was really cool. And they were, she was an 86-year-old infant, right? And it was beautiful because it was kind of an odd family, right? The mother was blind, the one daughter was deaf, and they were both home together, so the one would be the ears and one would be the eyes of the other. And they spent their entire time growing in the faith, coming to Bible studies, learning this was a whole brand new experience for them. They were absolutely in love with Jesus, absolutely in love with, with growing spiritually. And we couldn't give them enough. And then some, the bad news was well, at one point they actually listened to uh, Christian radio. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it confused them. Because one of the things about what we were doing at that time is we didn't use a lot of standard old evangelical words so that we didn't do the Bible vocabulary quiz. We just talked about the Bible concepts. And so they were listening to the radio in their 60s and 80s, and they heard some speakers say, if you are not born again, you will not enter the heaven at all. You must be born again. And they're like, uh-oh, are we born again? I don't know. So they came to Bible study, all three of them, one who had both eyes and ears that worked, drove, and they all came, <laughs> which, is a, which is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. So they, they came to the meeting, 
and they, they, they cornered me. The three of them cornered me before the, the meeting started. We just heard, you have to be born again or you're not, you're not saved. Are, are we not saved? So then I just said, stop. First of all, I want to say, where did you get that? But I didn't. I said, here's what that means. Born again is a Bible word that used to describe the change that happens on the inside of a person when they surrender their lives to follow Jesus Christ. It's like they become brand new on the inside. And now they want new things that they never wanted before. Now they want to follow and learn about Christ when they never did that before. Is that true of you? Oh, yes. Then you're born again. Oh, good. some milk? Want some milk? The wonderful, and so I don't care how old you are, but if you have come into a brand new relationship with Christ, if your life has made a radical change, if you suddenly have understood things you may have heard from the time you were a child, things you may have only heard for a little bit in the last few years, but if you have finally understood that this story of Jesus is a true story, it's not just religious myth. It's not just sociological uh, concepts that we're trying to perpetuate some form of control over human beings through the use of religion. If you understand that this message about Jesus coming into our world to show us what God was like and that we killed him when we saw it and that three days later God raised him from the dead and appointed him to be the ruler and the savior of all humanity. If you have come to see and suspect in your very heart of hearts this is as, as wildly inconceivable a concept as it sounds. It is, it is true, I believe that. And you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. In that moment, in that moment, something changes in you. Something beyond your control. Something you have not chosen, but has chosen you. What you have chosen to do is believe the story. What has happened to you was a gift from somewhere else. In your believing the story, you have been changed. You have been born again. You have been, an even worse word that has less meaning, saved. You have become a follower of Christ. If that is true of you, and whenever that is true of you, at that moment, you qualify, regardless of your physical age, regardless of your, of your intellectual acumen, regardless of your financial success or lack thereof, in that moment, you have become a child of God in a brand new way. You qualify for something you didn't qualify for until that moment. You've become a child of God. What opportunities you have in that season of life, and it's just the season, right? It's just a season. Those of you who 
are watching your life change perhaps from um, mid to late teens to early 20s realize, oh, life is changing. I, a, a, very, a daughter of a very close friend of ours is now living with us for a while. She's just graduated university, and guess what she has to do now? Work every day. Every, and she's from another part of New York State, so she's come to live with us because we're closer to New York City. And every day, I drive her in to the train, and she gets on the train, and she goes to New York for her work. And Monday, she does that. And Tuesday, she does that. <laughs> and Wednesday, she does that. And Thursday and Friday, and she delights that she doesn't do that on Saturday. And then Sunday she realizes, oh, tomorrow. (laughs) The season of being the perpetual student has come to a close. Welcome to the rest of your life. (laughs) I delight in rubbing her nose in it every single morning. You're just starting, honey. You're going to do this for 40 or 50 years. (laughs) Knock your socks off. Right? If you're living through a seasonal change, you suddenly realize, yeah, that was a season. Listen to me carefully. For Her name is Beth. For Beth. You can't go back and redo the senior year of university. You either got out of it what you had to get out of it, or you didn't, because that season's over. Right? Every season gives you a chance to do something. The season of childhood gives you a chance to do something that you can't do later. So take advantage of the season that you are in. And live it wholeheartedly, because when the season changes, it's over. You can't plant your rutabagas in January. You can't, uh, you don't even have rutabagas here. We don't have rutabagas in New Jersey either, but it's just a weird vegetable that everybody hates. (laughs) You can't plant your potatoes or potatoes or tomatoes when the ground is frozen. Sorry, you can't say, oh, now I think I better get them seeds in the ground. Too late! The season brings opportunity. You either take it or you change season without having taken advantage of it. The season changes whether you're ready or not. Right? Beth's done studying graphic design at university. You know, either you got it or you don't. Because 7 o'clock, you get on that train. So if you are spiritual, you have the opportunity, like nowhere else in life, to simply receive nourishment. To study and learn the things of truth to learn the word of God. If you are new in your faith, I will tell you, please, 
Don't miss this opportunity. Read your scriptures every chance you get. Put them on your iPad. Put them on your iPhone. Put them in your ear. Listen to them on the way to work. Listen to them on the way home. Let the word of God get in your heart and mind. Because in this season, when all of those muscles and those brain connections and all of those wonderful things that happen naturally in the physical are equally happening in the spiritual, all of those things that are forming, all of those understandings, all of those concepts, all of that nourishment, all of the the way you think, the way you understand, the way you want, the way you love, the way you give, the way you serve, all of those things need to be nourished by the Word of God because if you don't nourish them when you're young, they are forever atrophied and you will be always running to catch up you have the opportunity to feed that young spirit life of yours to nourish it to give it sense of direction to warn it of what it must be aware of to encourage it for where it must go to teach it what to want Teach it how to not want. It's your opportunity. It's your opportunity to grow in the heart of a father, to learn what the father's heart is for you. That's why John says, your sins are forgiven. That's the thing he wants to remind them. Your sins are forgiven. Do you know here we are all these years later And I'm still rejoicing in the fact that my sins are forgiven. But I have never built farther than my initial understanding of how amazing that grace has been in my life. That God would choose someone like me without my being worthy. Not just because he got in a good mood one afternoon and decided, ah, McGrath, he's all right. It's not how he forgave me. He forgave me because he poured out of the life of his son. And I've been nourished for decades and decades on the wonderful truth, the word of God, about how I've been forgiven. It becomes foundational in my life. Don't miss this opportunity. Children need to be nourished on, on, on the heart of the father toward us. They need to be nourished about how the amazing gift of the Son is what is the reason why God can change his attitude towards us. This is the reason that God is for us, is because he is for Jesus. And because he is for Jesus and we have been placed into Jesus, he is for us. He is not just, you know, I decide that some jerk in New Jersey named Mark McGrath, I'm going to be on his side. No, God is only ever on one person's side. Only ever on one person's side. He's on the side of Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then he's on your side. And it's the gift of his son that makes God on my side. Because I have been placed into the son. It's not just that Mark McGrath from New Jersey, God decided, I'm going to support him. He's a good egg. No. He supports Jesus. He supports Jesus. He's so committed to his son. By faith, I've been placed inside his son. And all of the clothing that belonged, all of the honor 
that belonged, all of the grace that belonged, all of the, of the, of the, of the abilities that belonged to Jesus Christ, I am now clothed with those very things. I now walk around in my world looking to the Father exactly like Jesus. Treated by the Father exactly the way he treats Jesus. Because I am in Christ. You are in Christ if you have repented and believed in him. We need to learn that. We need to accept that. And when you're young in the faith, you need to to drink that over and over and over again because it's nourishing the neurons in your spiritual brain that will determine how well you think in the future. All right. What are the temptations of a child? There are two that I want to talk about. There are more. Two temptations of a child. First one is that you want to stay a child forever. It's just living easier. Right? I mean, where else in life will you get up in the morning, be uncomfortable, somebody picks you up, brings you to something, makes it all better, warm and cozy, and then you're thinking, I want something to eat. There it is. I'm bored. Oh, a game. I mean, there's no other time in life like that. I mean, this is really fun. I'm not... You know, I'm not sure I can stand up. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Where else are you going to get to play that game? It becomes intoxicating. And the first temptation is to think, oh, I'm not ready to walk on my own yet. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Right? There's actually two words for children in these two passages, right? He mentions children twice. Two words, two different words. One word means child like belongs to the family. And one word means child like learner. The temptation of the learner is that they will always think they're not ready. The temptation of the learner is to always think you're not ready. The temptation of the family child is to think, I'm the one they don't really love. To think that you're the exception. You're to give in to rejection. And I think that the two greatest temptations you face as a young follower of Jesus is one, to, to give in to the temptation to be rejected. I'm the, I'm the black sheep of the family. I don't get it. You start listening to other believers and, you know, well, God spoke to me. I don't know if I've ever heard God speak to me. I, I don't know. I don't know. They're all, they're all, they all get it. They're all talking about substantiated something or others and um, justified by what I don't even know it. I'm never going to get it. The two temptations that children face is to feel they don't fit in or they're never going to be ready. I want to challenge you. When you are feeling like you don't fit in, recognize that voice for the voice it is. It's the voice of temptation. How you deal with that determines who you become. How you deal with that determines who you become. When you hear that voice, 
And there's a huge difference between thinking a thought and hearing a thought. I am suggesting to you that every time you hear the thought, you don't fit in. You are, you are hearing the voice of darkness. You are hearing the voice of lie. And you either entertain the liar in your heart and mind, or you resist him and he flees from you. But how you deal with those temptations determines who you will become. That's one temptation, and the other one is that I'm really never ready. I just need to learn more. We have this mindset in Western culture that there is an educational bullet, a magic piece of knowledge, that once you find that knowledge, all of life will make sense. And since you still have doubts or struggles or fears or uncertainties, you must not have found it yet, so you're really not ready. Keep looking. And when you find the magic piece that makes you no longer doubtful, no longer uncertain, then you're ready. How many of you who have been natural parents felt ready day three after baby came home? Even if you were deceived into thinking you were ready on the way to hospital, you realized you were not ready on the first night home. Yet, it was, well, I need to read another book. They don't have a book to tell you how to survive without personal bathing or eating or, or using the toilet or sleeping. They don't make the book to say, how do you do that when you can't do any of the above? You just kind of have to do it. I want someone, I can't walk yet. <laughs> Fall down. What? Fall down. I don't want to be down. Then get up. I have a concept. You want to walk? Walk. Item number one. Item number two, this, this is fun. <laughs> Item number two, a sword, a dagger, a fighting instrument, complete with uh, sound effects, but that battery's dead. Okay, enough. Young adults, you are strong and have overcome the evil one. And the word of God dwells in you. All the stuff you drank as a baby is now bearing fruit. And God says to you, here, I have something for you. You grab the sword because it's time for a fight. There's a reason why young adults are in the armed services. You don't want to send clowns like me. We fire three shots and sit down and take a break. <laughs> you need strength. You need an idea of what fight you want to have. When you are a young adult, you start looking for the fight. Right? You start thinking, I, you know what I want to do? I'm going to take on that enemy. You know what I see? 
I want to do that. See that guy? I want to be like that. You get enamored by the opportunities to do stuff. So here's the word of the Lord. Do stuff. What stuff? Any stuff. It's your sword. Do something with it. Don't give swords to old guys like me. We'll take one swing and, hey, can I, you got coffee? <laughs> time out, time out, time out. <sighs> except, except if you give it to Lynn Cole, then, you know, 80 miles later, he'll look back for you. It's your sword. Do something with it. It's time to fight. It's time to do something. What about you? Do something. Do what? Do something. Pick a target. Attack it. Well, what if I lose? Yeah, that when you pick yourself up and you get healed and you go on. Do you think John Singleton never made mistakes? I, even I know some of them. <laughs> There's stuff if you haven't been around for more than 20 years, you don't even know we screwed up on. Oh, we have made more mistakes than you can count. So? We've done more stuff than we ever dreamt. But we made more mistakes. All right, it's your sword. Do something with it. What if I stab the wrong thing? Yeah, well, then apologize. <laughs> I gotta... <laughs> What, 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 what if I stab a friend? Well, then you really repent and apologize. Do stuff. Don't sit around waiting for the magic educational bullet. Don't give in to the fact, well, you know, I've only been a Christian for 30 years. I'm not sure I'm ready to lead a Bible study. What? Do you know in New Testament churches you could be a believer for like six weeks and you became an elder? What a recipe for disaster. But sorry, at six weeks, you were the oldest believer in the group. You lead. But what? I got to go now. But what if I fall down? Then get up. We have this extended teenagerhood in Western culture. That's a shame. We've done it because we were afraid of who would, who would swamp the workforce, and it was an economic choice that our cultures made to, make, to keep money in the pockets of older people. But that's not true in the kingdom of God. You get a sword early in the kingdom of God. They say, learn to use it, man. You learn to do something with it. Just do something. I might lose. Yeah, you might lose. I've got to promise you this. You will lose probably more than you will win. So go ahead. Might as well start now. You don't increase the, prop, the proportion of winning by doing nothing. You increase the proportion of wins by doing something. You will never up the, you know, I, I want at least a 75% victory rate. Yeah, well, good luck. Start with a 10% victory rate. And then you grow to 15. And then you realize, well, I'm not doing those things again. I'm going to do that instead. Oh, then you get to 20 you eventually get a better victory rate, but you get that rate of victory because you did stuff that didn't work right. But we're, 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 that's the temptation of the child. Oh, but if I fail, then I don't fit in. 
Like, heck you don't. We're the best organization of losers you've ever met. There isn't a better organization of out-and-out -out losers than, than the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, you had to admit you were a loser to get in. So did you think it changed? Did you think because you believed in Christ, you suddenly stopped being you? I got news for you. You're still stupid. But you're only going to get smarter with a sword in your hand. You don't get smarter with a book in your hand. Do something. What are you doing? Do something. What are you doing? Do something. What are you doing? Do something. Just do something. Say, I'll try that. I'll try that. I've never done that before. Can I try that? How do I have to get ready? I want to try that. It should be the hallmark of everyone. I want to try that. How do you do that? I want to try. I want to try. I've never done it before. I want to try. It's your sword now. Your sword. That's the opportunity of a young adult. You get to try stuff and figure out what you're good at and figure out what you're not good at. I tried pastoring three times before I finally realized, ah, that's not me. But every time I try that, I think, well, it doesn't feel like me, but that's what I've been told I have to do, so let me try. Oh, I want to try that. Maybe I don't know enough. So I spent one or two years just reading every book on how to be a, a good pastor. I'm a great person. I, I'm an amazing guy. But the traditional American pastor, I'm not. And when people say, oh, would you be? No, I won't, because you will hate me when I am done. I stink at being a pastor. It took me three tries before I finally said, duh. If it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, it's not an aquatic bird. It's a duck. Learn what you're good at. There's only one way. You're better at things you never thought of but you'll never find that out if you don't try them. And you really are going to stink at some things, but you're never, going to, you're never going to figure that out unless you really try it. Unless you're willing to put the sword in your hand and say, ah, let's give it a shot. What's the worst that'll happen? I screw up. <laughs> Been there before. Not the first time, won't be the last. I'm about. I'm, give me the sword. I want a shot. Well, won't I be proud? Yeah, well, if you're proud, then stop. I got an answer. I was like, well, won't, won't, won't it go to my head? Yeah, well, don't worry. We'll help you. <laughs> That's the opportunity of a young adult. That's what young adults are supposed to do. Be strong. Pick your fights. Figure out what you're good at. And then just keep trying more and more and more and more and more. It's your sword. Do something with it. You know what the temptations are. But the temptation that I want to say to you most, there's a more, but the one that I want to worry about, you have my sword back? Just for a second. It's your sword, you can do something. The temptation that has the most damning effect on us is that after we fail, and we're in that moment where we're just figuring out what that means, you say, I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to fight. I'm tired of losing. I'm not going to fight. 
the temptation that a young adult faces is to throw the sword down in defeat. Once that sword goes down and you tell yourself, I'm not going to fight anymore. It's not worth the heartache. I mean, you listen. Let, let the stories of those who've been around longer impact you. I have lost lo dear friends because we didn't know what we were doing. And sometimes I've had good friends that I have poured my life into turn on me and attack me. We've had years invested, lost. And I am not lying when I say to you there isn't, that we don't go through a season where I want to throw that damn sword down. So I don't want to do this anymore. I am tired of the pain. I am tired of the loss. I am tired of being nervous that I've done the wrong thing. If only I, if only I could have, might have, should have done it. I'm tired of that game. And I say, oh, go, whoa, 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 God, sorry, sorry, that sword's mine, I got it. My wife and I look at each other and say, it hurt, it was bad, I don't want to do it again, but we're going. Because the temptation that will kill me is to put the sword down in defeat and stay down. Are you there? Has that happened to you? Have you failed at something you really wanted to do? And it's just easier now. I'm just going to go to church on Sunday. I'm going to worship God. I'm going to give my money. I'm going to do the best I can. I'll go to, to you know, discovery group, whatever groups you're calling them now, um, development groups, and I'll do my thing, and yada, 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 but there's no sword in my hand. I'll even wear... Because this is Lifeline Church, you have to wear the sword sheath on your side to make it look like you had a sword. You know, you got you to look like it. But there's no sword in that holster. That's the temptation that will kill you. That's what changes your trajectory. Is that who you want to become fully when it's your chance to become that? You want to be the person who sat down because it hurt? My God, if Jesus had done that, where would we be? If Jesus sat down because it hurt, we'd all still be lost in our sin. No, no, no. We bear his name. Last one. shawl of a mosaic. I have scenes of my father-in-law watching television on his sofa in the winter months with the shawl around. It's what old guys do. It's a little chilly. Not chilly enough to turn the heat up. <laughs> shawl on. Parents, mosaics, older, 
Saints. Saints. You get a shawl. You earn the shawl through battles that you fought, through drinking the milk of a child, through wielding the sword of a young adult, and not giving up. You earn a shawl, something that you just know. You know, there's just things I'm, I've learned. My wife and I'll be married 40 years this next month. We still actually like each other. Like, imagine that. We like each other. That's the mantle of a mosaic. The temptation of a mosaic. Oh, oh, oh. Chilly in here. Play, boys, play. The temptation of a mosaic is to sit back and watch everybody else play. Now, the truth of the matter is, you don't want me carrying the sword for you. But if you're smart, you might ask me. Hey, I'm really not getting along with my wife real well. Here's the situation. What, what should I do? What should I do? Oh, that's when a mosaic takes his shawl. He says, here, walk with me. I'll show you how. The mantle of the mosaic is what gives you anointing do what you're called to do. All of us who are parents in Christ should learn to use our mantle well. Remember the story when Elijah the prophet has just finished the things of Baal and he's feeling sorry for himself and he's off. And you remember the story of the cave and the wind goes by and the storm goes by and God's not there, but the still small voice comes and God speaks to him in the still small voice and God says these things to him. I got three things for you to do. You are not done yet. Shut up. I got three things for you to do. First thing you got to do is you got to anoint this guy king over of Aram. This second thing you got to do is anoint Jehu king over Israel. And the third thing you got to do is you got to anoint Elisha in your place. Get on, get on it. Like, whoa, that's not feeling sorry. You don't feel sorry for a mosaic. So what does he do? And by the way, if you read through the story, Elijah never anoints Aram king. He never anoints Jehu king. It's Elisha who does those things. Interesting. You got three things to do before you die. Anoint this guy king, anoint that guy king, and pick Elisha for as your successor. You don't realize it yet, but... The timing isn't right for you to do all the first two. You just do the first, the third one. And he walks up to Elijah, who's plowing his field with 12 oxen, 12 pair of oxen, which means you're pretty wealthy, right? And Elijah just walks by, doesn't say a word, just throws his cloak over him, says, he says, well, can I go back and kiss my parents goodbye? And Elijah says, I don't care. Do whatever you want. You got my mantle. Holy crud. He goes home, does what he needs to do, anoints him, kills, sends a meal, and then he goes off to follow Elijah. He learns how to carry the mantle. And this is what I want to tell you. If you're a father, if you're a musée, 
What are you doing with your mantle? Wh who's wearing it? How and why are you giving it away? You should be thinking about giving away your mantle. And if you are a young man, you should be looking for some mantle to rest on your shoulders. Don't be afraid to plug into people who have succeeded where you want to succeed and learn from them. Ask them questions. How do I do this? What happens when? How do I navigate that temptation? What do I do if I fail? Don't be afraid. You need to be plugging in to those who have gone before you, men and women who have accomplished things you want to accomplish, and say, teach me. Teach me. Teach me. I want to learn. Temptation changes as you, as you go. One last thing. I've told you the story of my own journey, how God had to rebuke me here last October and changed my life. When I was a young man, the temptations that I faced were much more blatant and much more expensive. If I cheated on my wife... I lose everything, right? Lose everything. If I steal money from the church, I lose everything, right? Temptations, sometimes at younger ages, they're very expensive and very noticeable. Everybody knows the guy who steals money, the woman who cheats, the man who cheats. Everybody gets That's news, not news, known. But as you get older, the temptations grow more subtle. I am probably not even close to being tempted to cheating on my wife. At my age, it's, I don't even have the energy. <laughs> I, and I'd probably have to have conversations with people. I don't even want to do that. There's just, sorry, that's, oh, never mind. I'll call you next week. <laughs> Physically, change. But listen, listen, if I don't live wholeheartedly for God, if I don't live with my whole heart for him, I will wake up in the same bed next to the same person, in the same house, go to the same job, have the same friends, and nobody will notice but I will not be living wholeheartedly for God. That temptation is more powerful than the one that suggested I might want, lose everything if I indulged it. The temptation to not live wholeheartedly for God is silent, but it's a killer. And this I would challenge you. If you have a mantle, throw it. If you need a mantle, find it. And don't waste another day. Because if you don't live wholeheartedly for God, you will wake up tomorrow in the same bed, in the same house, with the same job. But you will miss what God has for you. And in this season is not the season to miss what God has for you. Because if you don't get it now, when the season changes, you can't go back and get it.
Amen? I appreciate your indulgence. But I would just like to pray with you. Would you stand with me while we pray? Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father. You are our dad. You give us the word to nourish our souls and to make our spiritual brains grow and develop our muscles. As young children here in this room, we want to grow and strong in the word of God. As young adults here, we want to grow strong in the sword. We want to grab the sword that you have placed in our hands. I do not want to sit down and be tired because it's hard or it's painful. I want to yield the sword, wield the sword that you have given me. For those of us who are older, the Musees among us, please let us be aware of the mantle we carry. Let us be looking to throw that mantle on the shoulders of younger men and women who have great potential in the kingdom of God, whose day is arising, whose dawn is at hand, whose strength is in their faith, whose power is in the Holy Spirit, whose courage is in the word of God. Let those men and women rise up among us and let us throw our mantle on them. God, as the season changes with us, help us to be ready for the dawn of the age that now comes. Amen, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Take your seats, please, a moment. Let me just, uh, just before we go into something else, let me just uh, help you with the taking this seriously, the application. Here's a question. In the light of what I've heard, Lord, what adjustment are you calling for me in attitude and action? That's a very worthwhile prayer of application to pray. Lord, what change in attitude or action have you got in store for me? You hearing me? Okay.